All right, good morning. Uh, yeah, we were supposed to have uh, the dancers dance uh, during the offertory, uh, but there was a, a little flu bug that went through, so we're going to put them on hold, and we can thank the Lord that I won't be dancing for you this morning. <laughs> if you've heard me sing, would you see me dance? Yeah, yeah, try it. You ever hear that verse on quenching the spirit? There you go. Just watch me dance or sing. Ah, amen. So, there I was, face down on the floor of the Aberdeen room, with the presence of the Lord so heavily upon me, I couldn't even move, let alone stand up. And um, I think I'm getting ahead of myself, so that is coming later on. Before I go any further into my story, uh, the honor of just being able to ask the Lord for his blessing, um, because it's a real honor to share not just my story, but what it really is God's story. Let's pray. God, thank you for a chance um, to finish up this series as we hear um, the pastoral testimonies. And Lord, even though many of these sentences that uh, I'll share today start with the, the word I, Lord, I am clearly not the main character in this story, Lord, it is you. Just like all of us here, Lord, our story is really your story. We are, we are just participants in this great gospel narrative. And Lord, help us not to take that ever for granted. Lord, we are privileged, Lord, that you would write us into this redemption story. And so, God, I, I just thank you for all that you've done to bring me here among these great uh, people, the, the family of God here at KPC. Lord, be honored today in everything that is done and said. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, before uh, I start into some of the basics, there is a great verse that is kind of woven uh, throughout the passage, the passages and the times of my life. Um, it's probably a passage that a lot of you uh, just resonate with uh, as soon as you hear it. I often quote it when I'm up here praying, and so I wanted to uh, make sure that we all saw that this morning. Um, it comes from Lamentations chapter 3. Here we go. Everyone know this one? But this, this is what Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, he wrote this in the wake of the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. And so you can imagine how everything was just so disillusioned for the people of God and seeing the temple raised to the ground. And so in the midst of all that confusion, Jeremiah writes this, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Amen. Well, God's faithfulness began for me on January 5th, 1970. I was born in Allegheny General Hospital in downtown Pittsburgh, which I might have had a gorgeous view of Three River Stadium, the home of the six-time Super Bowl champions, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, Patriots only have five, by the way. I just wanted to say that. Um, I was born five minutes before my twin brother, Wayne. And so there's Wayne right there. We came out, we came out of the womb dressed alike. <laughs> so we are, we are actually very fraternal, but uh, we are, we're best buddies. Um, I was born the little brother to my two older sisters, Jean and Lynn, and the firstborn son to Ron and Carol Santum. So here's the whole crew right there. This is circa 1971. So... Uh, that good-looking guy right there, uh, sometimes you can't tell us apart. There's Gene, there's Lynn, there's my mom, and there is my dad. So I grew up, too, if you just want a little context, I grew up in a little town called Mars, Pennsylvania. It's about 20 miles north of Pittsburgh. You know that book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus? 
I am literally from Mars, so <laughs> if you want to read my life story, just get that book. They don't mention my name in there for some reason, but um, I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, my mom, uh, she became a Christian uh, several years earlier through the witness of her sister-in-law, and then she convinced my dad, my hardened, stubborn, sin-ridden dad, to go to a Billy Graham crusade in the late 60s um, at Three River Stadium, and that's where he met Jesus. Um, it's been said that that is the greatest and most miraculous thing to happen in Three River Stadium, other than the Immaculate Reception. Um, so, so if you know my dad, he, he came here a time or two, but um, as the Lord brought him into the kingdom, he was just a powerhouse of evangelism. Uh, uh, he had a strong deliverance ministry. Um, he was an elder in his church. And, uh, you know, I remember, if you didn't know anything about my dad, uh, when my brother and I would have friends over in middle school and high school, you know, my dad, was just a, he was like a witnessing machine. So, you know, we were a little embarrassed of my dad, of course. And so when friends would come over, and we would pull him aside. It's like, listen, if my dad asks you any question, just answer Jesus and you'll be off the hook. So <laughs> get him off your back. Um, so they, they came, my parents also came to faith in the middle of the charismatic renewal in the late 60s and the 70s. We went to our first church. It's called North, Northfold. And it was literally in a dome. It was like a dome-shaped church. And um, I mentioned before, you could get PE credit for attending worship service at Northfold. <laughs> Uh, there's this crazy wildness of the spirit. I mean, if, you, if any of you grew up like in a really boring Presbyterian or Baptist church, man, I kind of feel sorry for you. I mean, it was entertaining. We'd go and see all the action. We'd have people with flags doing laughs, singing, blow the trumpet in Zion, all that crazy. It was, it was really, so my brother and I, we didn't know what was going on. It was just really entertaining. And uh, it, it could have helped. We we'd noticed, as I got older, I noticed that uh, the wildness of the spirit was great, but it could have used... Um, the anchor and the boundaries of the word to do things properly and in order. That's one thing I really appreciate about KPC. So I saw the Lord move powerfully, yet I saw a lot of abuses or a lot of hippies from the 60s that kind of found their niche in this charismatic movement, and we got to, you know, do, do the Christian life with them. Um, so it was about this time, about the time that I figured out the Rubik's Cube, uh, 12 years old, um, that I realized that God does not have any grandchildren, only children. And I knew that the Lord was calling me, that I could no longer just kind of ride the coattails of my parents' faith. How many of you did that for a while? Like, hey, my mom and dad really love Jesus, so, you know, Lord, make this count. And I remember asking them, I remember crawling into bed one morning with them after a lot had happened. And I said, Mom and Dad, I said, what if, what if I'm walking right on the fence between Jesus and the world, and then I died then? Like, where would I go, to heaven or hell? And so uh, they just, it was just a beautiful God-ordained time because they seized upon that teachable moment and said, listen, Mark, they said, God is so much bigger than this balancing act. It's not, a, you know, it's not all up to you. And they said, if the Lord is convicting you right now, that means he is pulling you to a side and he's holding you close to his chest and he got you. And that just gave me such an immense amount of peace. And so I took a walk up in that woods that very day uh, through our woods next to our cornfield and I just took a walk as 12 years old and I just felt the Holy Spirit cut me to the heart I repented and received Jesus right there, uh, just me and all of the corn stalks all around me. And so uh, for the first time, I didn't feel like a spe spectator, but God was inviting me to be a participant in the life of the gospel. And so um, a few months later, I got baptized in a pool with my dad and, uh, and a pastor in the church. And so um, that happened in March 1982. So uh, coming up this March, I will have been following the Lord for 35 years. And I am so grateful for that. 
But there is no doubt that, uh, in my mind, that the events of July 11, 1980, which happened two years earlier, had a profound effect on my faith walk. So this is what happened. Um, on that night, uh, my family, we were over at my uncle's house in the northern suburbs of Pittsburgh, uh, and it was late at night, 11 o'clock, and we were, we were heading home. So we, we took two separate cars. So my dad and my twin brother, Wayne, and uh, myself were in the, in the Clark W. Griswold station wagon. And so uh, I was asleep in the back. My brother fell asleep in the passenger seat. My, my dad was driving. And we came around a really sharp turn on Sloop Road, and a drunk driver came on our side of the road, and it was a head-on collision. And so um, I woke up, and I had salad dressing all in my hair. I remember that. I'm like, what just happened? So I remember coming up over the seat and looking and seeing the whole front of the car smashed in. I saw my dad hunched over with blood pouring out of his mouth. And then, um, and then I saw my brother, my twin brother Wayne, who was down on the floor, completely unconscious, and his face was unrecognizable. He had smashed his face off of the windshield. He didn't have a seatbelt. You know, in the 70s, who wore seatbelts in the 70s, you know? And it smashed his head off the windshield, and he was laying there, and it looked like he was lifeless. So uh, it turns out he was in a coma. They rushed my dad and him in the hospital, to the hospital in an ambulance where he, uh, they lost him twice on the way to the hospital. They got there, they stabilized, and they realized that uh, his, his condition was far too tenuous. He had a uh, life flight him to Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. So they took him in, in, in a helicopter and um, where they said if he survived, he would have irreparable brain damage and he would never be the same person. He was just 10 years old. So that night, I'll tell you what, we had some weird people in our church, but man, could they pray. And so they gathered, they gathered at the hospital. They gathered in my home. I remember uh, uh, a friend of our family, Tim Ioli, I remember him. He just stayed up all night with the Bible, just crying out to the Lord um, on behalf of my brother's life. And I, it was really sobering to see the family of God come in and, and help us out. And so, you know, scriptures like this, James uh, 5, 14 and 15, Is any among you sick? Let him call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. Talk about sometimes you have a really vested interest in, in, uh, in taking the scriptures at their word, right? And so my brother uh, was in a, uh, you know, he was in a coma in a stable state, but very tenuous. So after the weekend, there was no signs of improvement. So um, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, my dad and my mom and my brother-in-law, Ron, they went over to my brother's hotel room as he laid there, or hotel room, that would have been nice, the hospital room, and he, as he laid there, you know, looking lifeless. And they, they felt that there were some spiritual things going on that, uh, that the doctors were not aware of. So they rolled up their sleeve, they got in there, and they prayed, they took authority in the name of Jesus. And as they were done praying, they felt kind of like the, 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 the heaviness lift, and they said, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. As soon as I said amen, my brother's eyes popped open. He goes, I'm hungry. <laughs> it was amazing. So... So the doctor, the doctors come, the doctors come rushing in, and they go and they check them all out, and they come back and they report to us. Said, uh, "Your son Wayne has no sign of brain damage whatsoever. <laughs> We're completely healed him." And so within within three months, he was back, uh, you know, playing peewee football. Um, he went on to be class president, class clown in the same year, and became one of the fastest runners in the 800 meters in the state of Pennsylvania. And it was a testimony to what God had done. And so. 
So we knew, because my brother and I, you know, as we grew up in our teen years, we did not embrace the Lord like we should, but we knew that the Lord was not done with us. The Lord did not save my brother so he can continue uh, to party and live for himself. And so the Lord, he has his ways and he had our number. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, guys. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness to us. A few years later, in May of 1985, uh, me and my family would have to rely on the faithfulness of God like we never had before. Um, See, in the fall of 1984, my mother was diagnosed with liver cancer, and uh, six months later, uh, the Lord took her home. So I was just a freshman. I was just a freshman in high school, and I was a mama's boy. Any other mama's boys out there? Don't, yeah, that's right. That's right. Don't be ashamed. We'll start a club. But she went, down, she went downhill very quickly. Here's a picture. This is, the last, this is the last Christmas we had with Mom. My oldest sister, Jean, she was already married and moved out. So there's my sister, Lynn, my dad, and my brother and me. So that was the last Christmas, so the Christmas of 1984 that we had with our mom. And uh, let me guess, let me just tell you, we did not take that lightly. We watched our mom, one of the most godly women to ever walk planet Earth, methodically get eaten up by cancer. She had chemotherapy, of course. Her skin turned yellowish, jaundice. Um, because of the chemotherapy, she often got the shakes. I remember the day it really kind of came real for me. I was in there watching television. My mom was making dinner. I mean, she, she still put wood in the fireplace. I mean, she was a trooper. She acted, part of the reason we had trouble uh, accepting the fact that she, you know, she was slowly dying was the fact that she just kept on doing what she was doing. And so I remember one day in the kitchen, I heard a bam, 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 bam. Like, what is she trying to kill a mouse or a... Uh, an insect, so I went in there, and here, uh, part of the uh, chemotherapy side effects was you got the shakes, and she was in the middle of making dinner, and she was trying to hold her hand steady on the, on, on the pot, and I saw corn and vegetables come flying out, and I remember just looking there, and I just watching my mom trying to struggle to make dinner, uh, going through all this, and I thought, this isn't good. This, this, this is really bad. And so um, she was always afraid, like many women would be, uh, to lose her hair, because that's what chemotherapy does to you oftentimes. And my sister relates the, the time that my mom was washing her hair in the sink. She grabbed her towel and dried it, and she looked up, and then half of her hair was in her towel. And she always dreaded that day. She always dreaded that day when she would lose her hair. And so then, um, but the great story is she, would like, she looked up in the mirror and saw half of her hair out of her head, and she said the peace of Jesus just came all over her. And she was able to look at herself and just smile, and the Lord was like, we got this, it's okay. And she never fussed over that, shaved the rest of her hair off and wore a wig uh, until the day that she died. Um, I never saw her break down. I never saw her curse God. I'm sure she had her moments, but she never did it in front of us. And uh, people would come over to minister to her. She would, you know, in turn, go back and minister to them because she was always in the Word, always praying. She had so much to give. So let me just tell you, her last week on, the last week on this earth, it was rough for her. She was back in the hospital. She spent most of her time out of the hospital. But the last week was bad. She took a uh, turn for the worse. And so uh, on May 16th, my dad was, was prompted by the Lord to take my brother and I out of school to go visit with her. So we did. And uh, we were expecting kind of the worst because we have seen her uh, look pretty bad. We got there and she was sitting up. She was composed. She had all kind of energy. And my brother and I, what? So we went and we spent two hours with my mom and we were laughing. We played endless games of Uno. It was such a gift from heaven. In fact, I walked out of it and I said to my brother, I said, I think she's going to get better. So my dad, uh, the next day, picked us up from school about 9 o'clock in the morning. 
And as we drove home, she, he told us that my mom had passed and gone on to be with Jesus. Um, you know, even at her memorial service, the Lord moved mightily. Her testimony lived on even after she did. We had people come to faith at her funeral service, at her memorial service. It was such a beautiful thing to witness. Now, he spared my brother in 1980, but he did not spare my mom in 1985. And to this day, I have no idea why he chose to do that. In his sovereign plan, but I know that God is also sovereignly good. And I trust him. And I, I, uh, I was able to echo the, the, the words of Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But either case, blessed be the name of the Lord. And I was so grateful. I tell you, the real gift was that the Lord didn't allow me to get a root of bitterness. Like, how dare you take my mother away from me? But instead, I just like, Lord, I thank you that I had my mom. And there's a lot of people on this earth that don't even get to ever meet a woman like her, let alone have her for a mom for 15 years during my formative years. And for that, I am so grateful. And uh, right here in my Bible, I'll show you this, and I'll share this with you all, because this is like, this is how I know I love you all, because I'm sharing this with you. This is what I perpetually keep in my Bible. We found uh, this note that my mom had written um, in, uh, in her Bible, and so uh, we found it a little bit after she died. So this is, this is just a private thought. She didn't mean for anyone to see it, I doubt, but this is what she wrote. She wrote, this battle that I'm in is not mine, but his. I praise him today for bringing me to this place in my life where I can say that he is my joy and my king and nothing I desire compares with him. My desire is that I won't ever allow him to have a rival as number one, no matter the circumstances, what I feel or what I see. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. He's beneath me, uh, he's above me, beneath me, beside me. If, you know, if that's all you knew about my mom, that's all you would have to know. And... Um, in fact, there was some crazy guy in our church that after she died, he told my dad, he's like, hey, uh, Lord, I think we should go down to the graveyard and try to resurrect your, resurrect your wife. My dad said, trust me, she's with Jesus. She would be so mad if we brought her back. <laughs> Here's that. Uh, over the next few years, my dad uh, remarried a wonderful woman of God named Joyce. She's, a, she's an amazing uh, grandmother to all of uh, the grandkids. I got a new stepsister, Renee. My older sister got, got married and moved out. My sister, Lynn, married to the youth pastor of our church, my youth pastor. Weird. But, you know, youth, <laughs> youth pastors are good. You've got you to gotta cut them a break. So um, my brother and I graduated from uh, Morris High School in 1988, about the time I was dom dominating the hardwood there. As a Mar listen to our mascot. I'm not joking. We were the Morris High School fighting planets. That was our mascot. Um, so my brother went off to Slippery Rock University uh, up in, uh, that's a real place, up in um, Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, and I was an English education major at Geneva College, uh, which is in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, home of Joe Namath. There it is. And so um, something happened to me there. Uh, it was a great education. I, I, I love Geneva. So Lord, just in God's great, uh, you know, crazy paradoxical plan, I had to go to a Presbyterian college to encounter the Holy Spirit. So uh, I grew up, you know, I grew up in a charismatic church, but because I saw a lot of the abuses, I really was like, you know what, I'm throwing the baby out with that bathwater because this is getting a little too weird for me. And so um, this is how it went down. There's this, this dude named Scott that was in my dorm, and for some reason he took a liking to me, and he said, like, hey, he's always saying, come to this prayer meeting that we have. And I knew he was, I could hear him praying up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and it resonated down the stairwell. People were like, oh, there's that crazy Scott. And he was like, hey, come to this prayer meeting. I was like, oh, yeah, I kept trying to put him off. And so uh, I had a headache the night that he had really invited me to come. And I said, yeah, bro, I'll come. And it was 8 o'clock, and I looked at a headache, and I was so glad I had that headache. 
because I had a good excuse not to go. So anyhow, so I start walking back to my dorm, like, thank you, Lord, for this headache. And the Holy Spirit said, stop, go to that meeting. I was like, oh, what the headache. And so anyhow, I went in obedience. I didn't hear the Lord much, but I, I was pretty confident. He told me to go to that meeting. So Scott, who would eventually become one of my best friends in the world, um, that's him at his wedding. I was his best man uh, years later. I go into this meeting, right? And so there's Scott and like eight people playing, uh, you know, Maranatha Hosanna music from the boombox. And, uh, and so they're all praying. I come in. Scott's like, hey, Mark, good to see you. So he comes over and he's like, how are you doing? I was like, well, I, I have a headache. And he's like, well, let's just pray for you. I was like, all right. So, you know, I stand there. He prays for me. And as he's praying, my headache is lifting. I was like, what is happening? The headache was lifting and it seemed to disappear, but there was a lot more going on. So there I was, face down on the floor of the Aberdeen room, and the presence of the Lord on me so heavily I could not even move, let alone get up. And so as I'm laying down there, I felt Scott's hand on my back as he was praying for me. And um, I noticed that he'd been praying for me a long time. Like, wow, this, this dude's dedicated. He really wants me part of his cult. And, um, <laughs> and after a few minutes, I looked over, and I heard Scott across the room praying for someone else. And I thought quizzically, if he's across the room, then whose hand is on my back? I look back and ain't nobody there. I should say ain't no human there. And so I knew that, uh, I knew that it was a, one of the first times I ever felt that, that the literal tangible presence of God on me. Once I looked back and saw that it was just me and Jesus, I collapsed to the floor and I began to cry. And without even asking for it, I just began to speak in tongues like I'd been doing it my whole life. It was amazing. It was amazing. It wasn't, I don't know if you, any of you have been subject to this, but when I was like 11, my dad took me and Wayne up and you know, he brought some of the elders up to try to coerce us into speaking in tongues. It was the weirdest thing ever. I was like, I, I ain't never doing that. So the Lord's like, yeah, we'll see about that. So I didn't even ask and boom. And what I, what I love with Joseph Garlington, if you know to him, he's the uh, pastor for Covenant Church of Pittsburgh. He said, it's not that we have to speak in tongues. The glorious thing is that we get to. And I always thought, you know what, that is so true. So by the night wasn't over. Here's the best part of the story. Uh, before uh, I got up and left, people were, were leaving for the evening. And Scott came up to me. He's like, bro, it's like the Lord's telling me to tell you something. I was like, all right. At this point, I'm like, bring it on. He said, because of what the Lord is doing in your life, your brother Wayne's life is going to be changed forever. He doesn't even know Wayne. He doesn't even know that I have a brother. I was like, oh, boy, this is interesting. So I go home at midnight, go back to the dorm, call him on the payphone. Hey, kids, we used payphones back then. So I put it in my quarters, <laughs> called my payphone. My brother answered the phone. I said, hey, Wayne, I got to tell you what happened to me tonight. So I told him. He's like, wow, Mark, that, that's really great. I, I, uh, you know, I don't know what to say. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy for you. My brother wasn't following the Lord at all. And so I said, well, there's one other thing. Scott said, because of what the Lord is doing in my life, I don't know, maybe because we're twins, that your life is going to be changed forever. Bam! The phone drops on the hard tile floor, and my brother wails and sobs. Dude, if you ever heard my brother cry, he's a crier, man. He cries at anything. Man, he was sobbing. I'm on the phone for five minutes like, okay, hello. But I knew, I was in Cal. I just knew the Lord was, was moving in his life. And so he picked up the phone. He goes, Mark, he's like, I'm so happy what the Lord did for you. He said, but I'll tell you what. He's like, I, as he was, as you were telling me this, I heard the devil in my mind saying, yeah, but look, he's forgotten about you. And so 
to, for my brother to know that the Lord hadn't forgotten him. My brother was even contemplating suicide because his life was just... And so, here's the, here's the amazing thing. Less than a week later, he goes to the campus ministries of... Uh, there's a spirit-filled campus ministry on campus, and they all knew Wayne. In fact, they would say, when we got together to pray, we would pray for the nation. We would pray for India. We'd pray for China. We'd pray for Russia and Africa. Then we would pray for Wayne Santum. And so my brother goes to that meeting. He repents as hard as, as hard as they come, and he gets filled with his spirit. And uh, so that week, he's out knocking on the doors of the dorms. He, he's witnessing, witnessing the same people that he was partying with just two weeks earlier, and he has never, never looked back. Oh, but praise God. So now here is, uh, here's a quick, uh, this will be, this is part of, um, go a little more quickly, the summary of my 20s, this is life in the 90s, after I graduated from Geneva, I uh, took an incredible mission trip to Russia for the summer, shortly after the Iron Curtain came down, um, I then became a high school English teacher for a couple of years at South Hills Christian School, I have to, I would be remiss if I didn't show you all my great mustache there, um, so that's how we rolled in the 90s, that actually seemed to be cool at the time. So I was, I, I taught English and uh, speech, uh, you know, it was a Christian school, so I did everything except for drive the bus, pretty much, but I was only there for a few years, because it's hard to make ends meet, they paid me in peanuts and dimes, so uh, I went on, and I had an opportunity to work in uh, the world of college admissions at my alma mater back at Geneva, so I went back there to begin to work, and so this is, uh, and I had no idea what the Lord was doing at the time, in hindsight, you look back, you're like, okay, I see what you're up to, God, I see, I see where you're going with that. So I'm there one year, and boss Dave, he says, hey, Mark, there is this, there's a small denomination. They run a summer conference every year called Summer Jam, and they don't have a college of their own. They need help to run this summer conference. You know, you've done some youth ministry, right? So um, we're gonna, we need you to go out there and like be the MC, help them run their sports tournaments, and you can shamelessly promote Geneva. I was like, all right, I'll do that. They're in Colorado and Florida, all these great places. So I go out there to the, this, uh, this Summer Jam conference, and I found out that it was run by this little denomination called the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Never heard of these cats before. But over the next five years, I got to know these youth pastors, and I got to love them, and I loved to be a part of what they were doing. And so you can see the Lord is already crafting. Uh, it says in Psalm 37, 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. And he delights in his way. The Lord has already set my step up for the next season. You know he's doing that for you right, right now. The, the, the people, the places, the circumstances. He's setting the stage. He's 20 moves ahead of us all, maybe more. And you guys can look back and say, Lord, why did I meet that person? Why did I take that job? Why did I go to this church? And you see how the Lord uses all of those connections. Ah, it's so great. The, the, the heart that can rest in the hand of a sovereign God. Um, so it was during this time that I started volunteering with a parachurch ministry called Youth for Christ Campus Life. It's, it's similar to Young Life. It's a parachurch evangelistic outreach to students in the public school. So uh, I, started, I started doing that, loved it at the time. I got a chance to speak at camps and retreats, youth groups. I got a chance to minister to a lot of middle school students, high school students, college students, uh, particularly in the areas of, um, you know, uh, that struggled with lust or you know, sexual promiscuity or porn addiction, things like that. So that became a real ministry for me. And so it was in the mix of all of this. It was the first time that I felt the call to full-time ministry and possibly even to seminary. It's like, hmm. But before the Lord would let me do that, 
he, had a, he saw fit to break me out of my bachelor to the rapture mode that I was in. Just like, just you and me, Jesus, that's all I need. He's like, well, you're going to need a little more help than that. So on October 3rd, 1995, I met Tina Tremontosi in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Now, Tina Tremontosi, great Italian name. She was recruiting for Messiah College. I was recruiting for Geneva. So we went to this high school in Altoona, Pennsylvania to recruit the same students. How do you... How do you mark, you say, how do you ask that um, I remember the exact date? Because a lot of you dudes can't even remember what your anniversary is. I'll tell you why, because it was the same day that the O.J. Simpson verdict came down. <laughs> so uh, they wheeled a TV into the gymnasium and everyone was watching. So every time I see a guy try to put his glove on, I'm like, oh, Tina, it just reminds me. So we, we didn't see each other again after that for seven months uh, later. We didn't talk, anything like that. But seven months later, we met each other at a conference again. She was afraid. She knew I was from a Presbyterian college. And so she's like, oh, man, I can't marry this frozen, chosen, you know, uh, guy that doesn't understand my charismatic background. But when, when we got to know each other, we found out that we knew all the same crazy songs, had all the same stories. And so she's like, all right, I can deal with this Presbyterian. That'll work. And so, uh, so then seven months later, we weren't playing around. We got hitched after that. So on August uh, 2nd, 1997, those two little young kids got married. And this August, we will be married for 20 years. Yeah. 20 years hitched. So soon after we got married, we were unified in our conviction that God was indeed calling me to full-time ministry. So we headed off to seminary in uh, the year 2000. I considered places like Fuller or Gordon-Conwell Community College, whoever went there, Pastor Steve, it's a good school, I'm just kidding. Um, but I sense the Lord was leading us right here to Virginia Beach to uh, attend the Regent University School of Divinity. And so, this is cool, when an EPC youth pastor from one of those summer jam conferences, he heard that we were moving to Virginia Beach, he goes, bro, he's like, you're reformed and charismatic, right? And I was like, yeah? He's like, dude, you gotta check out this church. KPC, Kempsville Presbyterian Church. He's like, they're like reformed and charismatic. And I was like, what? I never heard anything like, they don't have anything like that north of the Mason-Dixon line, I'm telling you. And so, um, so it was interesting because over the years being at Geneva, I, you know, I grew up a, uh, if you're, if you grew up in a more of a Pentecostal charismatic tradition, you know, you don't really read people like John Calvin and so forth. And so the Lord really challenged me uh, when I heard these notions of God's sovereignty and predestination, I was like, oh, get behind me, Satan. And the Lord's like, hey, you got to wrestle through this, man. So I wrestled through it for years. And so uh, it's just an admonition for some of you that have grown up in the same faith tradition your whole life or the same church. Lord probably wants to open up your worldview a little bit. Um, I love what um, uh, Bill Johnson said. He said, God will never violate his word, but he doesn't mind violating your understanding of it. So let God violate your understanding of his word. And so, uh, so together we can see how awesome Jesus is. We need each other to do that. And so, uh, so in 2000, 2002, uh, we, we came here. We moved uh, here to go to Regent. Met some great folks from Regent that are still here today. Regent was such a sweet, sweet place. Still is. Um, uh, I got involved in the young adults group here. You know, it was like the Riddells, the Milanas, the Halls, the Coens. We would stay up till 11 o'clock at night. Remember that? We had no kids. It was great. We didn't know what to do with ourselves. And then, um, so we were only here for two years because after that, uh, because of the connections I had with the EPC, the Lord miraculously opened up the opportunity, the privilege for me uh, to go and work at our denominational headquarters uh, in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, that's, Neil was there at the time as well. And so... 
so I, I went up there to be the National Student Ministries Director uh, for a number of years. So while we were up there, the Lord said, hey, you thought marriage was a good sanctifier? Bam, let's have two kids. Let's make you a lot more like Jesus. So in 2002, uh, I had, uh, we had our daughter Rachel right there. She's so sweet. And then uh, two years later, we had Ethan. And these two have gotten along well ever, ever since. So, yeah. Yeah, but, um, that's one of my all-time favorites right there. Um, so we were excited because after six years, uh, I was phasing out of my position there. I was excited because I had the opportunity to do a, a church plant, an EPC church plant uh, in Slippery Rock, and I was really excited about that. We were really excited about the possibility of the new season, but one thing that I have learned repeatedly we need to hold a, always do a, a tight hand on God and a light hand on how life will work out. It rarely goes according to script, am I right? So at that point, the, uh, the church plan opportunity fell through, and um, my wife and I went through a really, really difficult time in our marriage. Uh, the kids were so young, they weren't even fully aware of that. Uh, where we re- really needed the support of our friends. We needed good Christian counseling. Guys, if, you, if your marriage is struggling, get some counseling. There's no shame in that. We all need each other. We all need help. Um, and, and we needed desperately the help and the love of the church. I really went through what you could call a dark night of the soul. Like, do, do I even want to be married? Do, uh, do I ever want to go back into ministry? It, it was a tough season. It wasn't the mark that most people have come to know. I don't want to say to know it love, but uh, they're like, it, it wasn't, I wasn't myself for a long time. So God orchestrated his old boomerang maneuver in, in, in his faithfulness, and, and he got us out of Detroit, and he brought us back to Virginia Beach. I got an opportunity to work as the associate director of admissions at the School of Divinity, where I graduated from. So in 2008, we moved back here to Virginia Beach. We jumped back into the KPC waters, and it was so healing for us. I'll tell you what, for Neil, Neil was instrumental in, into my transition back here. We had some pretty tough times. Neil had to have an intervention or two with me. And, uh, but I am so grateful for you, Neil, and uh, for the other folks that have come alongside and, and said, you know, we're, we're going to get through this together. And of, of all the things he reminded me is, of, you know, not just to re-engage with my wife and my family, but Romans eleven twenty nine 29 is true that the gifts and gallings of God are irrevocable. If God called me to ministry, then a dark night of soul isn't going to prevent that from coming to fruition. So by faith, I jumped back into the School of Divinity to get my MDiv, which I could get free of charge, which is nice. Um, I knew the MD was required for ordination, so I'm still working on that. It should be two months, and we should be uh, in the clear on that one. So uh, that was a big step for me to go and then finish the MDiv. So my testimony concludes by telling you what brought me here today. On a normal September afternoon in 2014, is uh, probably several months after I'd finished my MDiv, I was working at Regent. Um, I was walking around, and my phone rang. So I looked. And I didn't, I didn't really recognize the number, so in faith, I answered it. And it was a, a dude on the other end, a lot of you know, Stephen Demetrius Keller. I don't even know that's his middle name. Um, anyhow, Steve called, and he's like, hey, bro, uh, you want to come, come and have lunch with me and Neil? I was like, okay, well, what's this all about? Is this a bait and switch? What's going on? Did I not tithe? What's going on here? And... Uh, 
And he said, hey, I want to call and I want to get together with you and, and discuss the possibility of KPC changing from a place where you simply attend to where you can come and, and, and minister. I was like, all right. So um, it was kind of a fulfilling of just a premonition that my wife had. The first time when Steve came here and preached as the interim pastor, she looked at me and said, you know what? That's the kind of guy that you could do ministry with. I was like, you know what? I think you're right. And so uh, that, that proved to be very true. So after a humbling meal with Steve and Neil, the Holy Spirit confirmed what the Lord had up his sleeve. So in 2015, exactly 20 years after meeting my first EPC youth pastor, I became one myself right here at KPC. Yeah, thank you, Lord. And I'm so honored to grow uh, with this body and see how the Lord continually writes our story together for his glory. Uh, well, hey, since it's my testimony, which is really God's story, I want to conclude um, a time here where we can all just worship to a song that has ministered to me greatly over the years. You know, as a kid, my dad would repeatedly say many things to us. Some of those um, you wouldn't understand. Some of those are off color. But some of those things are really, really awesome. And this is one thing he would say to me and to uh, my brothers and sisters. He would say this. If I only had one day left to live, if I was on my deathbed, and I only had one thing left to tell you, I would say this. The greatest thing in all the world is knowing Jesus. That's what he would say. He repeated that so many times. And because I got rooted in my spirit uh, for, for most of my life, it, I found a, a scripture, Philippians 3.8, that, that, that says just that. And here's the last slide right here. Philippians 3, Paul writes to the Philippians, I consider all things lost in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Well, no one has made a song out of this particular verse, but it does remind me of one of my favorite ones um, that basically says the same message. Basically, the message is this. There's Jesus and then there's everyone else. There's everything else. And there really is no comparison. And so I love Psalm 8410, if you know that, where it says, where David declares, better is one day in your courts, O God, than a thousand outside of it. I would rather be a doorkeeper at the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Man, if that is not the cry of every Christian story, God, Lord, you're so awesome. And if there's any choice, there really is no choice because there's Jesus and then there's everything else. So um, if you would stand with me, we're going to sing Better Is One Day with the help of these great guys. Um, and two, if you need prayer for anything, I'm going to uh, invite the altar ministers to come up here. If you have prayer either during the song or after the service, feel free uh, to come up and get the ministry uh, that, that you require. Put down your shame and your pride and just come on up and say, Lord, uh, I need you in my story because God's the one that's ultimately writing our stories. Am I right?